You're listening to TIP. On today's episode, I'm joined by Scott Patterson. Scott has been a reporter for more than two decades, mostly at the Wall Street Journal. He just published a new book called The Chaos Kings, which showcases a deep dive into the world of hedge fund managers and traders that profit tremendously during times of calamity. For example, during the COVID crisis, Bill Ackman had a $27 million bet that turned into over $2.6 billion. The Chaos Kings largely highlights a hedge fund run by Mark Spitznagel and Nassim Taleb. These two have profited tremendously from calamity for many decades. Taleb saw his first big success during the 1987 Black Monday crisis, and these two joined forces in the hedge fund industry in 1999. In this episode, we cover who the Chaos Kings are, the story of Taleb and Spitznagel setting up a hedge fund that delivered average annual returns of over 105%. Yes, you heard that right. Average annual returns of over 105%. How these hedge funds managed to profit tremendously during times of calamity. What led Nassim Taleb to get interested in the markets in the first place. Why we should be mindful of just how uncertain the world is and our global economy is today. How investors can protect themselves from a black swan event. How predictable black swan events are for these traders. Looming black swans that Taleb sees in today's world and so much more. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation with Scott and I hope you enjoy it as well. With that, here's my conversation with Scott Patterson. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. All right. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Investor's Podcast. I am your host, Clay Fink. And on today's episode, I am absolutely thrilled to be joined by Scott Patterson. Scott, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Well, Scott, I brought you onto the show to chat about your new book, The Chaos Kings. And I absolutely love that you wrote this book because it highlights the importance of considering these extreme tail risk events. And just when that word comes up, I just have a handful of things automatically come to mind. You know, you think about geopolitical tensions, AI, and then you think about just our increasingly fragile financial system. I think a good place to start this conversation is just to simply ask you, who are the Chaos Kings? The Chaos Kings, it's a term that I came up with in this book to describe a group of traders or investors who have managed to, in various situations, benefit and actually prosper during times of chaos. They see something coming that looks risky and dangerous, and they make trades that can benefit from it. Or the people that I mainly profile, Mark Spitznagel and Nassim Taleb of the Black Swan fame, they are constantly trading around the risk of chaos in the markets. So there's different varieties. There's some that use very advanced physics techniques to try to predict when something crazy is going to happen. There are others that just use their sort of gut instinct like uh, Bill Ackman, who I profile in the opening section of the book, who in January of 2020 saw what was going on with COVID-19 and was really freaked out by it. (laughs) And he understood the nature of the risk that the pandemic posed before many others did. So he was able to enter these trades very cheaply because other people weren't uh, recognizing the risk and ended up making billions of dollars uh, when things went south. So Ackman kind of, he really highlights one of the key traits of this chaos king trading strategy, which is you have to panic early. And panicking isn't a thing that you usually want to associate with investing or trading. But in these situations, it actually sometimes is good to panic because if you don't, if you wait, if you try to assess the risk in the situation, it's going to get ahead of you and you're going to be too late and you're going to get run over. Similarly, in uh, the mid-2000s, there were hedge funds that saw what was going on in the housing market and the derivatives markets. They were able to trade earlier than others very cheaply and get into these positions that ended up making billions of dollars. So these are very profitable 
trading strategies because of the nature of the risk that happens and the, the cheapness with which you can enter these trades can create these explosive returns. And that's how Mert Spitznagel explains his strategy, which is explosive upside return. You can buy something for you know a derivative, an option contract, say, for 40 cents. And when the volatility really hits the fan, you can sell it for $60. And that's something that they have done. So that shows you how that's a crazy, you know, sort of out of this world game that can be made on these trades. It's interesting you mentioned Ackman there. He made $2.6 billion, I believe, on the drawdown in COVID. But the interesting thing about Spitznagel is that he's profited from these downturns over and over and over again. So he's kind of figured something out that a lot of other people haven't. And I think about how most investors, they kind of ignore the possibility of calamity or they expect to weather through it by just hanging on to their investments. And then Spitznagel is looking to actually thrive when that calamity and that chaos strikes. To give more background on Spitznagel, he launched a hedge fund with Nassim Taleb in 1999. And then they ended up shutting that down in 2004. And then Spitznagel very timely relaunched that in 2007 to, again, try and profit on these swift drawdowns. So could you expand a little bit more on how Spitznagel was thriving in these times of calamity? Yeah. So as you said, the strategy got its start in 1999 with the launch of Empirica. And Mark and Nassim, they met each other at New York University. They'd both been sort of dabbling in these strategies where you buy derivative contracts and you buy them very cheaply. And then when the chaos hits, you benefit a lot. So Mark had done that. Uh, Nassim had done that through some of the big uh, dust-ups in the 1990s, like the Asian flu. They had both benefited from that. So when they met, they kind of, it was a great meeting of the minds of two people who were discovering similar attributes in the market, that these investments could be got into very cheaply, and they had these explosive returns. So they launched Empirica, and it really was the first so-called tail risk hedge fund ever created. It wasn't designed to invest in the stock market. They didn't invest in commodities. They only did one thing. They entered positions that would have this explosive upside risk in major downturns. The trouble with the strategy is that when things are normal, it loses a little bit of money every day or every month. So you can go through these fallow periods where you're not really making a lot. It can be tough emotionally to go through that. So they did very well in 2000, 2001 during the dot-com blow up, but then things settled down when, you know, Greenspan lowered interest rates, volatility went down, and Nassim just got very frustrated with this day-to-day bleeding, as they call it. You know, it sounds kind of painful. It's emotionally challenging to go through that. So he ended up deciding to shut the hedge fund down. He thought it was bad for his health. Mark thought he was crazy because he really believed in the strategy. He thought they had something totally unique, which they did. And uh, he, he just thought Nassim was making a big mistake. So he took a few years off. He did some other things, worked at Morgan Stanley for a while. But all the time, he was sort of thinking about how to refine the strategy, how to make it better, more efficient. So in 2007, he relaunched, as you said, good timing. He did have a sense that, you know, maybe this was the time to do it. And coincidentally, it was the same year that Nassim published The Black Swan. So both of them had very good timing. The Black Swan, you know, as as everyone knows, is about extreme events, not only in the markets, but in the world and how people tend to discount these extreme events. They prefer to not think about them. You know, there's all sorts of behavioral things that come into play with that. We have like recency bias. So we think what happened yesterday is going to be what happens tomorrow. That's just not how the world works, but it's how people work. It didn't rain yesterday. I'm not going to need an umbrella today. That's how I am. So they launched in 2007. Nassim wasn't involved in direct day-to-day trading of the firm. He did uh, provide some advice to it from time to time. But mainly he was, especially with the fame that he, he got with the Black Swan, he helped provide you know visibility to Universa. But it, it really didn't catch on. They, they had a couple initial investors when they launched. But Mark, he traveled the country in 2007. Uh, early 2008, making his pitch, and nobody wanted it. Nobody wanted to invest in Universa, despite all the signs that we were seeing a lot of volatility. And the reason for that is the returns of a hedge fund like Universa are very lumpy. And for 
normal investors, that's not good. Modern portfolio theory really likes trading strategies that have steady returns, low volatility. You kind of know what you're going to get. Universa, you lose money year after year, and then you make a billion dollars. But to most investors, pension funds, whoever they were pitching it to, they didn't like it. It was a line item for them. It was a loss. You know, you're losing millions of dollars a year. It's hard to justify that to the board of these funds. Something so weird. It was just completely unique. Then around mid-2008, things started getting a little crazy. The September 2008 collapse of Lehman Brothers, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, AIG, you know, all those things blew up. And all of a sudden, Universal was making massive gains you know, 100% uh, of their portfolio up 100%. So they got, that got them a lot of attention. I was the reporter who first broke the the news about the returns. I actually, I broke the news of Universe's launch in 2007 and also that Nassim had shut his hedge fund down in 2004. So I've, I've known them for a long time and I've been following, you know, their performance for a long time and they remain controversial, but you know, they created an entirely new investing strategy. And how many people can say that? It's funny when Spitznagel relaunched that fund. In your book, you described it as what investors called the Goldilocks period, where markets were really calm and things seemed to be well under control and investors really became complacent. And then when I hear about these investors that do really, really well, in my mind, it's all about finding the mispricings in the market. And you know they're able to buy options that are extremely cheap that ended up eventually becoming extremely valuable. They may not know the timing of when that happens, if it's this year, next year, the year after. But eventually it happens and they get that strong outperformance. The really interesting part of this is that despite their strategy being somewhat well-known, there were a lot of copycats that weren't able to get near the results that they did. So what do you think was different from their strategy than the copycats? I wish I knew, you know, then I'd launch my own Hell hedge, uh, hedge fund. You know, I, I've talked to Mark about this a lot. What is it that they do? And he says, it's trial and error. We've been doing this for decades. We really know the market. We know what we're doing. You know, since they've been around so long, they're known on the street as a firm that will do these trades that hardly anybody else normally wants. Their trades are bets on a one month decline in the S&P 500 of 20%, which is Kind of crazy, you know, because that doesn't happen very often, obviously. But they enter those trades time and again, and the the counterparties, the firms selling those trades, just see that as steady revenue. You know, yeah, these nuts over here, they're gonna they're betting on this thing that we know is not gonna happen. That's millions in our pockets. So they have developed these relationships with the counterparties and the brokers on Wall Street that I they they're sort of like a market maker for these kinds of options that few others want to buy. So I think that's part of it. They have a sort of first mover advantage. You know, I think also there are other strategies that they employ that lower their cost because basically at the end of the day, this strategy lives and dies on the cost of entering these trades. The clients give them the money, they go out, they build the portfolios of these far out of the money options, put options and the cheaper you can do that, the longer you can last, the cheaper it is for your clients. So one thing they do is they actually sell options that are more near the money to the current price of the stock that they think are more accurately priced, or they might actually be able to make a profit on, on those trades. So that helps bring down the cost structure of the strategy. That's a thing that I would obviously have no idea how to do. I wouldn't recommend your listeners try to do that either. So, and it's also why this isn't a strategy for everyday investors. If everyday investors tried to replicate this, they would over the long run probably lose money because it's, you know, you have to keep rolling over the trade and more, more likely than not, people who think they're, they're going to do this, they're going to end up spending money for six months or a year and think like, this is stupid. I'm losing all this money. I'm not making anything. And that's what you, you have to overcome that instinct. You have to keep doing it, waiting for, you know, it could be years. But when it finally happens, you make a ton of money when everybody else is losing. That has multiple benefits because you've suddenly got this infusion of cash when, you know, everyone around you is losing cash and the market's down and you can, you know, buy when there's blood, literally when there's blood on the streets. It's a sort of a Buffett-like strategy in some ways. He waits till 
things are really bad for everybody else. He's got all this dry powder and he goes in and, you know, gets these great deals. And Spitznagel actually sees himself as sort of like a value investor. These options are, he believes, they're dirt cheap, underpriced, he thinks, according to the risk. And, you know, he's buying them. Normally they expire worthless. They're junk. But sometimes they're, it's a gold mine. One of my favorite parts of the book was the involvement of Nassim Taleb, despite Spitznagel kind of being the brains behind the strategy. I wasn't too familiar with Taleb's background prior to him writing these best-selling books. So could you talk about sort of what he was up to prior to getting involved with Spitznagel and then how they met and then eventually launched this strategy? Yeah, Taleb was born in Lebanon and he was growing up in Beirut when the war broke out there in the 80s. So, you know, he had sort of an up-close look at how a normal world can suddenly deteriorate into total chaos and war. He moved away in his teens and, you know, studied business in France for a while. Then he came to America and went to American universities. He worked in business school. It was one place he attended. And it was there that he learned about options, he told me. And he really grew, I mean, it's kind of weird to think about it, but he really grew fascinated by these things that I think to most people would just seem really boring. But he he looked at it and he thought there are strange properties to these options that a lot of people don't really understand. So then he started trading on Wall Street, working for various firms, trading options. He was really good at it. At one place, he became known as the Bobby Fisher of options an homage to the, the famous chess player. And then in 1987, he found himself at First Boston on the trading floor in Midtown Manhattan. He had been, you know, dabbling in options and other derivative contracts. And, you know, one thing he started doing was buying these really cheap positions on options on uh, euro dollars. I'm sure your listeners don't want to know what those are, but like futures contracts on euro dollars and he had built up this big position you know on these euro dollar contracts very cheap contracts so black monday comes along in october 1987 everybody gets wiped out he's there on the floor this is a scene i you know describe in the book people are just crying and freaking out his boss is sitting there at his desk begging the numbers to stop moving and you know everybody's shell-shocked nasim's positions are, are doing pretty good He's looking around and saying, well, you know, I'm." he didn't really know why at the time it was so chaotic. People didn't even know why the market had crashed so much. So that was Black Monday. But his positions didn't really take off until the following day when the Federal Reserve infused billions of dollars into the financial system. And it had this weird effect on the contracts that Nassim owned that they went parabolic, which means like up like a rocket. So... You know, he told me about how he was looking at his positions and he was saying, you know, stuff he bought for 50 cents, calling to the floor broker saying, sell for 300. And the broker would call him back and say, sold for 350. Yeah, sell for 400, sold for 450. And it went on and on like that. And this was a move that is just not calculable in these contracts. It's, it shouldn't have existed in the history of the universe. You know, they're so far out of the realm of statistical probability that you can't even really calculate it. So that's when he, he really got this lesson on how the normal parameters and probabilities that Wall Street uses to measure the risk and potential profit of various strategies was just totally off. At the time, he wasn't really sure what was going on, but it, it definitely intrigued him. So he, he continued to you know research it, pursue these trades. He ended up in the 90s writing a, a sort of technical book about trading derivatives that explained his pursuit of you know un trying to understand why this stuff happened. And then you know in 1999 he launched Empirica with Spitznagel. But it always comes back to Black Monday for him. He just constantly brings that up and says it was the greatest trading day of his life and it you know, made him rich. And so, yeah, it was, that was the seminal event. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. 
Don't just ride the index. Seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. Our friends at Coriant provide wealth management services centered around you. Coriant's goal is to exceed your expectations and simplify your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. They are one of the largest integrated fee-only U.S. registered investment advisors, and Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. The teams at Coriant put the collective power of their expertise into building you the custom wealth, investment, and family office solutions that can help you reach your holistic financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, speak with an advisor today at Coriant.com. That's spelled C-O-R-I-E-N-T dot com. That's Corient dot com. When Rain Wilson had a great idea, he turned to AT&T Business. They assured him no matter how out there his idea may be, they had his back. So he came up with this, a talking pillow designed to put you to sleep, backed by a reliable network in the only network with built-in security controls. And thus, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your business to the next level at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. All right, back to the show. Now, Taleb, when you're talking about him in your book, he stated that, or he believes that financial markets and the economies that depend on them have become increasingly complex, unstable, and prone to crashes. You know, he very much believes that we live in a world with increasing fragility and increasing uncertainty as time progresses. And and many investors are underestimating the level of risk and fragility in the overall system. What are some of the things you think are going through his mind for why he so strongly believes this? And what are your thoughts on why we need to maybe be aware of just how fragile and uncertain our world is today? Yeah, there's a couple reasons why he thinks that. It's all really interesting. Some of it comes back to complexity theory, which he really started reading a lot about in the 2000s. And he got to know some very prominent complexity theorists. And it's hard to say what complexity theory is. You know, it's got multiple definitions, but it's basically the the study of the interconnections of various properties and phenomena and economies and uh, risk systems and financial markets. And part of the idea is that as systems become more complex, more interconnected, they can become more fragile. Uh, as like one part of the system breaks down, it sort of ramifies through the system and hits the rest. So the whole, you know, you, you pluck one piece of the spider web and the whole thing comes down. So that's kind of the core of it is that the global economy and the financial system is more interconnected than ever. And I think that 2008 was a perfect example of that. You saw one part of the world economy, the U.S. housing market, declined, which was not expected. But if it had just been a decline in the price of houses in the United States, you've not seen a global financial crisis. The financial system was all connected through these derivatives. I don't know if people remember, you know, endless stories about credit default swaps and collateralized debt obligations and how they were all bundled together. And, you know, all the banks had bought them and they had sold them to pension funds. So through complex interrelationships in the financial system, a you know, sort of blip in one part of the economy triggers sort of these explosions all throughout it that, you know, threaten to take it down the entire economy. When you think about COVID-19, that was something that it definitely was global, but you know we haven't seen anything like that in such a long time. And something that Taleb and, and others have been warning about is that the risk of a pandemic spreading in ways that they'd never done before is higher than ever because of global interconnectivity through increased, mainly increased plane travel. 
So you saw this outbreak in Wuhan, China, maybe in previous outbreaks, it could have been contained. But China is a very interconnected society. People travel a lot. Before the lockdown in Wuhan had been implemented, 5 million people had had left the region. So it spread very quickly, despite efforts, obviously, to contain it. It was uncontained and it spread throughout the globe. That pandemic caused the global economy to seize, essentially just seize up and stop. And, you know, we're still feeling the ramifications of that through inflation and issues with the supply chain that are getting worked through. But that's, you know, those are two examples of how increased complexity, interconnections in society is leading to more fragility and financial risk. Your book talks quite a bit about black swans and black swans. It's almost this phrase that just gets thrown around all the time. There's a black swan every other year now, it feels like. And like I mentioned, it almost seems to be like a feature of today's increasingly fragile economy. So I'd love to get your thoughts in general on you know how people can avoid being blindsided by black swans. And is it true that like black swans really can occur every year? Or I believe there's another term. I don't know if it's gray swan where there's these you know kind of tail risk events, but it's not you know, a fat tail far out on the, the bell curve. What are your general thoughts on this? Yeah, it's definitely sort of, there's a frustration to it, to, to defining what a black swan is. I know that Nassim feels the frustration because it's, you know, I remember a debate that he was having with uh, somebody who was challenging his conception of black swans. And he said, look, it depends on where you stand. Was 9-11 a black swan for the terrorist? No because they could see it coming. Was it a black swan for the pilot? Yes. So there are some complexities around it and people endlessly debate, like was the global financial crisis a black swan? Taleb would say, no, it was a gray swan, as you said, something that he had predicted. He had, you know, he was on record as predicting the failure of some of the big mortgage lenders like Fannie Mae. I don't know if he had predicted quite the collapse that we saw because you would have had to really know how thoroughly these derivatives have been spread through the financial system. Now, there were some people who did see that, who, you know, people like profiled in Michael Lewis's book, The Big Short, who actually were aware. So it kind of depends on who you are, if something is predictable or not. For most people, I think it was a black swan. So in terms of how to protect yourself, it's pretty tricky. You know, and it's something that I I sort of endlessly went over with my editor was, you know, on this book was tell people how they can protect themselves from black swans. It's not easy. So it's hard for especially, you know, everyday investors. What I would say is you have to be if you're going to be investing, you have to be humble. You have to be aware of the potential for big drawdowns and try to not take positions that are vulnerable to those kind of events. So I would say don't invest in a bunch of, you know, risky startups, play it safe. And you can't do a universal strategy. That's just, you know, as I was saying earlier, it's just so hard to replicate that. But historical record shows that really the safest investment that you can make over the long run is a very simple strategy. You invest in the S&P 500 and you hold on to it over the long run. You will get hits but you're not going to blow up. And that's where hedge funds and other, you know, like derivatives traders make mistakes and blow up. They literally lose all of their money in these events. We saw some catastrophic blow ups in 2020 very quickly. These firms can lose all their money in a day because they were not positioning themselves to be able to weather the extreme events. They were making very risky bets that were based, you know, predicated on things happening day to day as they normally do. And then something crazy happens. They're like, oh, well, you know, we couldn't see that coming. You know, who could see a pandemic? But the point of Taleb and Spitznagel is you kind of always have to be worried about that. You never know when it's going to come. A black swan is totally unpredictable in Nassim's definition of us and can happen very rapidly. You just had no idea this is going to happen. So I think the idea is just to try to avoid taking too much risk. Certainly do not use leverage or borrowed money. You know, there's a lot of people out there that are day traders. They've become day traders. With the pandemic, people were staying home, had nothing to do. And, you know, like all of these, uh, the sports betters started getting and dabbling in day trading. I mean, I may sound, you know, like a grumpy Gus or something, but it, to me, I think it's just a huge mistake to try to day trade 
the record shows that nobody is any good at that. You know, yeah, I could count on a single hand the number of investors who have been able to beat the S&P 500 over the years. Warren Buffett in 2007, he made a bet uh, against hedge funds over the next 10 years. He bet that the S&P 500 would outperform this basket of hedge funds over the next decade. And I kind of thought at the time, like, wow, that's, you know, hedge funds had actually been doing really well. You know, many had actually beaten the market in recent years. It was a pretty steady time post-dot-com bubble. Buffett was right. In that 10 years, the only year that hedge funds did better than the S&P 500 was 2008. And the S&P ended up gaining something like, I forget the exact numbers, but 140% compared to 36 or 37% for hedge funds. And these are hedge funds, you know, they're getting paid millions of dollars. They're getting rich off fees and they can't beat what your Aunt Molly is going to do if she puts her money in a Vanguard S&P 500 index. And that's just been the way it's been. You know, so Spitznagel, in the past few years, he's been analyzing various strategies that are popular with hedge funds, like uh, some money in S&P 500, some money in gold, some money in Swiss francs, bonds, looked at all sorts of permutations of these strategies. None of them over the period that he was looking at, I think since like 2008, has beaten a simple investment in the S&P 500, except Universa, which has actually beat it. What were Universa's average annual returns? They had audited annual returns through 2019 of over 100%, which is kind of insane because some of those years they lost money. But when you have a gain of 4,000%, which was after actually after that audit, that kind of makes up for a lot of the down years. I pulled this quote from your book, black swans are by nature undefinable, uncontained, incomprehensible, unpredictable, uncertain, chaotic, random, wild, out of control crises. It reminds me of what you're talking about there, how a lot of hedge funds, they'll do things like lever up or push into riskier assets to try and juice the returns. And it looks really good, uh, maybe for a few years. And it looks like, you know, things are all fine and well. And then all of a sudden that event hits, that's just totally unexpected and they just get blown up. And I think that's a big reason why Taleb and Spitznagel, they see the possibility of these things happening. And they're just like, yeah, number one thing is capital preservation for them. Yeah, absolutely. Risk management, it's entirely different. From, you know, People try to look at the strategy and say, well, this is it's not making money all these years and that's no good for investors. They are not speculators. They're not making bets on the direction of the market. They have a risk management strategy that is aimed to preserve the capital of their investors to the maximum extent that they possibly can. I think that it is one area that confuses people about their strategy, because if you, yes, they, they have actually done a lot better. If you just put money in a universal fund, you would have done pretty good. But that's not what they tell people to do, their own investors. Their strategy is that you, clients put in about 3% of their capital into the universal fund, and then the rest optimally in the S&P 500. They can do whatever they want with that other 97%, obviously. But we, you know what they do is they just use that as sort of a proxy for the investment in this universal strategy would do. And that is in contrast, other risk management strategies, like the most popular strategy is so-called 60-40, which is 60% in stocks, 40% in bonds, which has performed terribly in the past few years. I think 2022 was the worst period on record or in many recent years for that strategy. It had worked okay in, in other years, though. The bond portfolio, bonds go up when stocks go down, typically. So, you, you know, you've got a hedge there. But what Spitznagel will say is you're giving up a lot of upside potential in stocks when you do that. When you just have 60% of stocks, 40% of bonds, you're missing out on a, a massive potential upside. And market general, you know, historically goes up. It has these really rough patches. And that's the strategy is to, when you have the rough patch, protect yourself. And that's all that matters. You don't need to trade around the little 5 10% wobbles. You just need to protect yourself against the 40% or 50% downturn. And Mark has an interesting way of describing why those big downturns are so bad for long-term performance of portfolio. So say you have $100, the market goes down 50%, you have lost $50, you now have $50. To get back to where you were to $100, you have to go up 100%. So down 50%, you need to get back even, you need to go up 100%. So that's why you don't want to have that. That you can. It'll take years sometimes to 
crawl out of that hole. And that's what Universa tries to do is protect the investors from the, the big drawdowns, the little wobbles. The market will work itself through that stuff. And that's kind of what Nassim, you know, I was talking to a, a risk manager, Aaron Brown, who's known them for a long time about how Nassim kind of, and Mark too, but mainly Nassim with his books and analysis of typical Wall Street risk management strategies is, you know, quants, risk managers, typically they focus on the day-to-day, you know, and they think that if you manage those day-to-day risks, well, position the portfolio optimally for those day-to-day ups and downs, that's what you really need to care about. And, you know, you might spend a little time thinking about the black swan, the crash, but those are really largely seen as unmanageable. You know, what can you do? Every, you know, these things are crazy. You can't really think about that too much. Whereas, you know, what Aaron said is what Nassim showed is that's really all you need to care about is those, the big drawdowns. If you can get through those, then you'll be okay. Because if you can't, you're dead and you're off looking for a new job. It's very clear that Taleb and Spitznagel just thought a lot differently and they just viewed the world totally differently. And one of the things I always find interesting with people like these two is that oftentimes they're very critical of some of the things that are taught in academia, such as the efficient market hypothesis or modern portfolio theory. What were some of the things you found from these two when they were critical of what was taught in academia? Yeah. Well, Nassim's thinking his books, they've, they've had a big influence on me, you know, for a long time. I came into writing about finance as a, you know, I had a master's degree in English. Uh, I studied anthropology, I had not studied economics or economic theory, but I started writing about finance in the late 1990s and, and started reading more about the theories behind it, the efficient market hypothesis, which we, you talked about. And these are sort of predicated on this idea of the rational man that's sort of at the, at, you know, that goes back to Adam Smith, that uh, economies are based on people acting in their self-interest rationally. And you get this sort of optimal economy when everybody's doing that. And then this was taken by finance professors and apply to the market. So the market itself is always optimally efficient every second of the day because everybody is sort of rationally pricing in their expectations of where stocks are going to go or whatever commodities. And I thought that was crazy. I just just sort of coming at it from a completely different perspective, having you know reading novels and stuff like I thought people are completely irrational. <laughs> they don't behave in sane manners all the time. And, and and now you're talking about financial markets where it's people's livelihoods that are at stake. And I looked at markets and I see fear and greed. And fear and greed, these when you think rational, that's not <laughs> you know so yeah, lots of times the market is acting pretty normally, but when Amazon is going to the moon, everybody piles in, it makes no money for years and years. Is that rational? You know, because stock prices are supposed to be for projections of future earnings for investors. Amazon made no money for years and years. So I, you know, somebody who I also read a lot was George Soros's books and he definitely does not believe in rational and investors. He thinks that markets are driven by, you know, all sorts of strange factors that are sort of interconnected. And he would say Amazon, it wasn't rational, but there's sort of this self-fulfilling prophecy in what happened to that stock because the, the stock price goes up. The company can use that high stock price to buy other companies, compensate managers who might think that uh, they can get a better deal at Amazon. and But that's not rational expectations. So, you know, when I met with Nassim in, you know, 2007, um, that's when I got to know him. It really, what he was saying really clicked for me. These models that quants use are based on the bell curve, things all clustering in the middle of the curve. You know, he was saying like, no, it's the stuff on the back tails of the curve. That's what really matters. But their models just cut that out. They just say, no, we're not going to worry about that 5% risk that, you know, we could lose all our money in a day. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. If you're looking for the right franchise concept at the right time, an iFlex Stretch Studio franchise is the business for you. iFlex is the newest franchise concept from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. With over 200 licenses already awarded to our regional developers, there's never been a better time to own an iFlex franchise in your market. 
An iFlex Stretch Studio franchise offers its clients the best in professional-assisted stretching for one affordable price in one beautiful location. Even the Mayo Clinic says stretching can increase flexibility and improve your joint's range of motion, helping you move more freely. Prime regional developer opportunities and franchise locations are going fast. Don't miss this opportunity to get into this rapidly growing health and wellness business from the founders of The Joint Chiropractic. Find out more today. Call 888-994-3500. 539 or visit iflexpodcast.com. Call right now, 888-994-3539 or visit iflexpodcast.com. Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies? Yeah, so I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it? So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news. And each day you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market. So I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one. And I actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. Another interesting idea related to Taleb is the title of one of his books, Skin in the Game. You talk a bit in your book about how lack of skin in the game in the financial system also leads to this increasing fragility into the overall market. So I'm curious if you could expand on this idea as well. Yeah, I think Nassim really developed that idea after 2008 when you know all of these very highly paid managers of banks and hedge funds, mainly banks, I think is what he was looking at, lost all the money and yet walked away with millions and millions in pay packages and were bailed out by the government. Uh, One person he likes to really focus on is Rob Rubin, who was chairman of uh, Citigroup uh, through the 2000s. And he got, I think, $100 million from Citigroup. And yet that bank collapsed and required billions and billions in uh, bailouts. And Nassim says that happens because these managers don't have so-called skin in the game. So which to him would mean if the bank collapses, the managers are on the hook for that personally. Their own bank accounts are on the hook and will be required to help you know repay investors or clients. And he, he thinks probably rightly that if that were the case, they wouldn't be they would be taking all these crazy risks because they're basically socializing the risk 
to you know the rest of the country by saying if I can take all these crazy bets year after year, I get a big bonus. Yeah, eventually it may blow up, but by then I've got my private yacht and uh, island in the Caymans, and I'm fine. You know, so I, and I think that you know, right now people are looking at these regional banks that are collapsing, like Silicon Valley Bank, and thinking the same thing. Like you know, these managers. Either they didn't understand the risks they were taking or they made the gamble that it was worth it to hopefully get through any short-term volatility that they, they could get uh, survive that. Obviously, they didn't, but, you know, the bankers are not you know on the hook for that. So this seems we contrast that with hedge funds, which often the partners of the hedge funds do have a significant amount of their own wealth in those strategies. And that constrains the risk they take. I don't really know. I mean, I see a lot of hedge funds blow up. So I think that sometimes the greed side of the spectrum overcomes the fear side a lot. And, you know, they just they either don't understand the risk or they just are sort of captivated by the potential returns that they can make. I think a lot of times they sort of back themselves into corners by, you know, sometimes hedge funds will have a good couple of years and then a lot of money blows in. And that becomes a lot harder to manage. And there's just not a lot of good places. So a strategy that might have worked well for 100 million, not so well with two, three billion. And they start kind of looking around for places to juice the returns. They see some interesting derivative strategies that uh, are attractive and are being pitched by Wall Street. They get into those. They start selling a lot of options to Universa to get those nice day-to-day returns. So, you know, I don't know if it's effective with hedge funds, as Nassim says, but I certainly think with banks, when you have systemic risk and the too big to fail issue, it's certainly something worth exploring is some kind of either a clawback mandated in, you know, bank's charter that if, if the bank fails, the top managers will give up X percent of their salaries uh, from the previous five years or something like that. To my understanding, when looking at Universa's strategy, they kind of take the approach that these black swan events are totally unpredictable. We shouldn't try and predict when or what year this is going to happen. I think if someone hears about the story of Universa making three or four thousand percent throughout the COVID crisis, they think, oh, they just like, you know, bet big on markets just totally collapsing and they did it at the perfect time. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on, you know, how predictable these sort of things are, because I know you tell the story of Taleb. He saw a lot of the warning signs of COVID-19 in January 2020, and he was kind of sounding the alarm bells trying to, you know, wake people up to this. And then Bill Ackman saw the similar thing. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on, you know, are they scaling up some of their bets when they, you know, see a lot more risk and where they're at in terms of trying to predict these sort of tail risk events? Yeah, Spitznagel would say that he never speculates. So there have been, you know, I mentioned Air Brown earlier. Another thing he told me was that when he looks at the strategy, he doesn't see a way that it could perform as well as it does without dialing up that risk. You know, Mark says Aaron doesn't understand the strategy. How could he? They, it's they're a black box in a way. Like you know, we don't really know exactly what they're doing. We just know what the returns are, which are quite phenomenal. But yeah, he denies that. He denies that they dial up. Uh, you know, try to make the bet bigger when they see something looming on the horizon. Because their basic perspective is you just can't predict it. There's no telling when it's going to hit. If you keep doing that you're going to lose money for your clients over time. And he sees that as a a losing strategy. It's also hard to imagine a more aggressive strategy than Universa. You know, they're betting on a 20% decline in the S&P in a month. They could say, okay, let's bet on a 30% decline. How much is that going to really increase the returns? You know, they might get some cheaper options. I mean, they're already dirt cheap. Might get a little bit more upside. So when I think about it, it's, it's hard for me to really... They probably could do it, but I, it's hard for me to think of a more aggressive, explosive upside strategy when they're already employing. I mean, who knows? Mark says they don't do it. I believe what he says. There are others who, you know, like Ackman, who try to take advantage of the situations. They're, you know, it's some ways that like a, a gut trade, like they just feel something's going to happen and now's a good time to trade. And that's what, that's what Ackman does. 
right? I mean, he's also a very good investor in companies. He understands, you know, what companies are good or bad. He, again, like many others, sort of models himself on Warren Buffett. So he's looking for value. But he, he also makes these big bets. He, he did the same thing in the uh, global financial crisis, or he bet against some companies that were exposed to the housing market. But there have been other times in these, you know, we don't even hear about them where he's probably made similar bets and lost all his money. And that's what happens when, with these trades is if the big event doesn't happen, you make no money, you lose your entire bet. With the 2020 COVID bet, it seemed like a risk worth taking. You know, when you look at it in retrospective, I think it was 20 to $30 million that he spent on these derivative contracts that ended up giving a return of more than $2 billion. So yeah, that seems like a, you know, a pretty good trade to make. Not a lot of people did it though. I'm also curious, just because Taleb is just such a student of wide ranging subjects that are you know, going on in the world. Have you talked to Taleb about what are some of the things he's seeing in the world today that he thinks is a risk that is just way overlooked by people? One that comes to mind that you talk about in your book is climate change. I'm curious if maybe Taleb sees something else outside of that too. I asked him about AI recently and you know, I obviously everybody's talking about it and people within the AI community are kind of freaked out. I came across a study, there was a or it was a survey of AI programmers, I think from twenty twenty two or twenty twenty one. And one of the questions was what is the risk that AI could lead to the extinction of the human race? And ten percent of those surveyed said that was a risk, which seems like a really high number. But Nassim said he is not that concerned about AI. Uh, I haven't talked to him in depth about it, but he said it has local benefits. And to him, that's a code word for not systemic, that it might have little areas where it causes some harm, but doesn't spread throughout the system. And that's always something that he's you know, looking for in terms of a systemic risk that he's worried about. So one one area that he's expressed a lot of concern about over the years is GMOs, genetically modified organisms. And he and some others, you know, wrote a paper about that seven or eight years ago called the precautionary principle. And this is something I delved into the book about that uh, paper that it's an interesting analysis because they sort of use this GMO issue as a way to create a model for looking at potential systemic risk. So it's got to be something that is interconnected with other systems, food systems, obviously with GMOs, something that can so spread rapidly, something that has global effect, global impact. So those are the kinds of things that he's looking for you would apply the precautionary principle to. And the precautionary principle is not, he did not make that up. It's been around for decades, widely applied in, in Europe, but not so much in the US. And the idea behind it is that if something does pose potential systemic risk to the human race, the people proposing that we do this thing have to prove that it doesn't have that risk. So the onus is on the people doing it. And, and in this case, it would be on the GMO community. They are widely dismissive of such concerns. It's an interesting debate. I just present it as, you know, they outlined it in the paper. And I know the GMO people are very angry about it. You say the, you know, the burden of proof relies on those that are presenting these various ideas and whatever the idea is, it almost seems like an impossible task to prove that, you know, it's not going to have just a total systemic issue. Yeah, it's a very daunting barrier. So I, you know, I guess that uh, if these risks are real, then I can see why that would be something that, so in Europe, there are regulations against things that are seen as potentially systemically risky. GMOs are a lot less widely used in, in Europe. Even China didn't allow GMOs in their food system. But plenty of others in you know, America have been very open to GMOs. So and it's worth thinking about. I can't I'm you know, I'm not a genetic biologist or molecular biologist. And and that's you know, it's an interesting thing because they address that issue in their paper in the precautionary principle is that experts will say, well, you're not an expert, so you don't you don't get an opinion on this. And they say, well, we're not experts in the specific thing that you're doing, but we are experts in risk and complexity and 
potential systemic breakdown and ruin problems for the human race. That's what we know. And what you're doing has some of these properties and we think that you should consider it. And in the GMO people will say, well, you're going to condemn millions of people to death and starvation if we don't pursue these GMOs. It's debatable because when you look at real issues of starvation and hunger around the world, it's not the production of food that's the problem. It's the distribution of the food that's the problem. There's plenty of food being grown. It's You, you have war zones, conflict areas, becomes very hard to get food to these people. I mean, China, China has a huge overproduction of food that if it was distributed, it would, it would solve the world's hunger problem. So anyway, it's a debate. I'd never really had a strong view on GMOs until I, you know, in a, I read this paper. I, I don't consider myself able to solve that particular conundrum. <laughs> I see ups and upsides and downsides. I also think that, you know, as I say in the book, I think the GMO genie is out of the bottle already. So we're rolling the dice on that one. See how it goes. Hopefully it's not as bad as, as Taleb and his co-authors say. Pivoting to talk more about the systemic risks in the financial system, I think back to the great financial crisis, you know, total calamity and chaos struck. And then the Federal Reserve came to save the day, bail out the banks and continue to provide liquidity to the system for the years after that. So I'm curious if Taleb and Spitznagel are even more excited about their strategy today now that, you know, the Fed has really, you know, provided so much liquidity to the financial system. And now interest rates have cranked up, putting a lot of of pressure on the system. So I'm curious what maybe their general thoughts are on the strategy today. Spitznagel and Taleb have both been predicting a complete systemic collapse in the financial system for decades. And we came very close in 2008 and 2009. And yeah, we were bailed out by Congress and the Fed. So their view was very, very extreme view, in my opinion, was no bailouts, let the banks fail. If you can stop the bleeding now, but the, the patient is still sick and we'll just be sick until you know we face the reckoning. And it's just the longer we wait, the worse it's going to get. I totally disagree that the government shouldn't have done what they did back then because, I mean, we were looking at General Electric failing. We were looking at the entire economy collapsing and the hundreds of millions of people being put out of work around the world. So I think that, you know, what was done was smart and necessary. I also think that the perpetrators were totally left off the hook. And these were people who were easily found, like, you know, people who were running some of these big housing companies, people in the banks that were trading, you know, doing these strategies that lost billions and their managers either were willingly or just oblivious. There should have been, I agree with Taleb, um, he had a debate with Larry Summers in 2014 or 2015 at a conference. And Larry Summers was one of the architects of the bailout, you know, the Obama administration. And he was defending it. He was saying, you know, we, we've improved capital standards for the banks. You know, they're safer now. And Taleb was like, yeah, but you know, the problem is still there. And, and Summers is like, well, what are you for? And Taleb says, I'm for punishment. So I agree with them on some of those things. It's a very harsh view to say, just let it all collapse. And that partly comes from they have a very negative view of intervention of governments, libertarian views, especially Mark. So they kind of see every anything the government does is just gonna make things worse. You know, so it's created this system where the financial markets are just sort of floating on all this free money. It can't last. The natural order is eventually going to impose itself. And no matter what the Fed is going to try to do, it's just going to roll right over it. So he's expecting and he's recently written that uh, the system is sitting on a uh, time bomb that's going to explode. He won't predict when because he doesn't predict timing of things. He think it could keep going for years, but he does expect it to, to blow up catastrophically. And that'll be good for universes. I think they talk about one of their main risks is that the banks aren't around to pay up when their trades are successful, that the system just completely collapses, which would just be bad for everybody. But that's, you know, that's we're talking about like back to caveman days. 
That is another thought that comes to my mind when so many families and so many people are suffering in a drawdown and in a downturn and people are losing their jobs and such and mass unemployment. If the authorities see a company, you know, making billions upon billions in face of this calamity, you know, part of me thinks the rules are just going to change and somehow one way or another, they're just not going to get the payout that they thought they were going to get. I guess you never know. I mean, one thing you got to remember with Universa is they're protecting investors against these calamitous events, including pension funds. So it's not just like they're pirates that are you know raiding, raping and pillaging and making money on other people's misery. They're actually helping their clients, which includes pensioners and retirees. That said, you never know what regulators are going to do. I've never heard of any threat because they're just, you know, they're trading on open markets. It's very transparent stuff. I would say if you look back at what happened in the global financial crisis, there were firms that created brand new trading strategies and derivatives that were expressly designed to benefit from a blow up in the housing market. It was entirely new. You know, several of the big money center banks created these things, these swaps and if those hadn't existed, the disaster wouldn't have been as bad. But, you know, at the same time, it's hard to say they were they weren't really doing anything technically illegal. They were just creating these instruments that other parties happily sold them and they made a lot of money on it. But you never know. I mean, regulators can be unpredictable. That's for sure. Well, Scott, this was a really fun conversation. I loved reading through your book, The Chaos Kings, newly published around the time that this episode is going to be going out. So thank you so much for joining me. Before we close it out here, I wanted to give you the opportunity to give a handoff to whatever you'd like and where people can find the book. Yeah, sure. They can find it on Amazon. I have a website, scottpattersonbooks.com, and you can find me on Twitter at uh, Patterson Scott. Awesome. Thank you so much again, Scott. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Clay. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network and learn how to achieve financial independence. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.